Hey, this is Jen, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adults Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. 25 through 52, this is the word of God. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, but then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is this the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Father, we welcome you into this place. For this is your throne. This is your people. This is your church. And so you sit rightfully on your throne. But we don't come to you as peasants or as servants, workers of the field. We come before you as your sons and daughters. You've promised good things to your children, so we ask that you would extend your gift of goodness tonight. Give us the goodness of clarity, of understanding of your word, the goodness of your salvation, may we be in awe of it and not scared of it. And may we taste and see 
that you are good. Be present. May your spirit fill us with life as you have been faithful to do so in the past. Be present in your word. Be here because we need you. These people do not need me, Lord, but they and I both need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so when I say holiday season, like what comes to mind? Family, food, warm drinks, right? Because it's, it's all of it, right? Thanksgiving, it's, it's Christmas, it's all this time and in between. You know, if you're, depending on where you're from, you think cold weather, maybe snow, Hallmark movies, right? Or, or Elf, right? Hey, buddy, I hope you find your dad, you know, that kind of thing. You might, you, might, you might think that, right? Now, how do you guys walk into this holiday season? Now, some of you might have had a good year. Uh, some of you might have had a great year, and so you might be coming in thinking, man, I can't wait for 2022. If that's you, good for you. <laughs> um, but for some of you, it might have been a hard year, or this might be the first year that you don't have your dad at home for Christmas. Or it just might be a reminder of all the bad holiday seasons you had in the past because your family was abusive. Or maybe you come into uh, the holiday season thinking, man, should I just get drunk again because it's just been really lonely? Who knows? Good or bad? But the one thing that I don't normally hear about during the holiday season is this idea of hope. Because often Christmas, right, is the climax of the, not just the churches, but of just the world's holiday calendar. After all, we use Christmas to celebrate capitalism, right? <laughs> it's a joke. It's okay. You're allowed to laugh at it. No, it's not. It's okay. I'm just kidding. We're, we're meant to use this holiday season, the time of Christmas, to celebrate the coming of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity taken on flesh. However, when Christmas becomes the highlight of this season, we skip over something that I've come to find has helped made Christmas all that much more beautiful to me. It's this thing called Advent. And so if you've been at Mosaic for a little bit, you'll know we're uh, in Advent right now as a church. Um, but Advent, if you don't know what it is or you've missed the last couple Sundays, it's, Advent is a short season on the church calendar that's been practiced for centuries. And a lot of churches have moved away from practicing the practice of Advent or the time of Advent because, honestly, it's not as marketable and as exciting as Christmas is. But, but honestly, I think this is a mistake. Because at the heart of Advent is this aching for hope. A longing for satisfaction, the desire to see a disordered world put back together and made right, for justice to come and for peace to hold us. And while many of us think we know what it is to long for because, you know, we have Uber Eats and we wait 10 minutes too late and we decide Jeffrey's not going to get a tip from us this time. But really, we don't know what it is to long for. You might be like, well, you don't know my life. Well, okay, I get it. But I'm going to introduce you to a people in the Bible who know exactly what it is to long and to hope. 
So I'm going to give us a quick biblical uh, history lesson to kind of put hope and longing into perspective for us. So when you look at the Old Testament, you find this people called the, the Jews, the, the Israelites, the people of God. And they have this golden age of the kingdom of Israel. And it, but it ends around, like all good things, around 900 B.C. And because from there, the kingdom would be divided into two, into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. But both kingdoms would eventually fall into ba- Babylonian captivity in 586 BC. And then they would be released from captivity for 70 years in around 516 BC. But the last time they heard a prophet, a prophetic voice, which you have to remember, God in the Old Testament spoke through the prophets. And so when the prophets spoke, they knew God was there, that God was with them. But they did not hear a prophet speak from 430 BC until the birth of Christ. It was just completely silent. So there's a a people group that understand what it is to wait for something, for hope deferred. It is probably the Jewish people because for a thousand years, they had hoped that everything that had gone wrong would be made right, even though everything in their life made it seem like God was nowhere near. Now I know I'm saying that the Jews know what it's like to wait, but maybe some of us kind of feel this tension, right, in our own lives what it's like to long for something, because when you really want something so badly, it can feel like it's been a thousand years when you're wanting it that bad, right? Like it takes forever to happen. But welcome to Advent, because this is what it's about. Every year we remember that we are a people of longing and waiting and hoping, but that we know a God of hope and deliverance. So what I'm hoping that we can see in tonight's text is one thing. Committed to memory. Only Jesus can satisfy all of your heart's longest and greatest desires. Now, what are these longings, though, right? Because many of us come to this place wanting and longing for different things, but I I would argue that we could probably categorize or filter them through four major categories, and they're actually the categories of Advent. Hope, peace, joy, and love, because at the core of our human longing... That's really what we want, isn't it? Like, think about it. Wouldn't it be nice to have hope for a better tomorrow instead of just waiting for another dreadful shoe to drop? Or could you imagine waking up feeling peace instead of being bathed in anxiety? Or aren't you maybe secretly wishing that you wouldn't have to fake smiling anymore because your joy is actually genuine and not manufactured? And more than anything else, don't we want to know that we're loved without having to pay for it, to perform for it, or worried that we'll finally lose it? But believing that Jesus can satisfy all these things in our hearts can be really hard because we'll think we really believe because it's happened, we've waited for so long that he'll never come through. And this is not just a Christian struggle, okay, but a human one. So whether you're here and you're a believer or if you're here and you're not, we've all experienced longing for something for so long that in fact we just end up abandoning the hope for that thing because it's easier for us to leave us behind than for us to hold on to something that we never think will come through. Or we abandon our original longing for something else that we think will satisfy and then we find out that thing actually doesn't satisfy and then we're in this cycle of longing for one thing, for another, for another, for another and we're as empty as when we just started. Now this tension isn't unique to our cultural moment. In fact, this is exactly where we find the Jews as they speak to Jesus in chapter 7. 
Now, it's a long passage, so there'll be moments here where I'll have to kind of summarize bigger chunks, but I'll try to be as faithful to, to God's word tonight as I possibly can. And as you read verses 25 through 36, pretty lengthy, we find out here there's this group called the, the, the sum, they call the sum of the Jews of Jerusalem. So they were not the, the general crowd. This was not everybody who had come for the festival, but it was just some of the Jews who had resided in Jerusalem. And there was having this back and forth with Jesus because really they had no idea who Jesus was. And really, it's not just them. In fact, as we read this entire passage, no one has any inkling of who Jesus actually is. Even after Jesus says, this is who I say I am, they're like, ah, I don't know. I don't think that's who you are. And then, so they make these claims, like we'll see in verse 27. This is what they say about the Christ. We know where this man will come from, the Christ, the Savior. No one will know where he comes from. You know what the funny thing is? Guess how many scriptural references tie to that idea? None, zero, zilch. Look through the whole Old Testament and there's not a single verse that says the Messiah will not be known. In fact, they say you will know when he's around. When he arrives, things will happen. When he arrives, all of destiny will change. The world will know. That's why we sing in these songs, the angels singing the shepherd's coming, the magi coming. Everyone knows something has radically changed. They don't really know what it is, but they know something has happened. And yet these people are saying, eh, Messiah won't really change much. And then we get in verse 31 uh, with um, the Pharisees, no, the same people. It says this, many of the people believed in him, but kind of, only not really. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than, than this man, referring to Jesus, has done? So they're kind of believing in Jesus only because of the signs he's done, but they still don't really call him the Christ. But in their heads, they think, if he is the Christ, he has to do more signs and wonders than what Jesus is doing. But guess how many references there are in that in the Old Testament? Zero, because really the Old Testament really figures that the, the Messiah, the one that would come, there are more references to his suffering than there will ever be about the signs and wonders that he will do because Jesus is not the Messiah that reigns and then causes all of us to fall and be destroyed. He's the suffering servant who is sacrificed on our behalf so that we would be raised to places that we have no business being in. But the main question here that they're trying to answer is Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ, Jesus? Now, if you don't know this, and I hope you do, but if not, you'll learn today. Um, Jesus Christ is not Jesus' name, okay? Uh, Christ is not a first name. It's not a last name. It's not a name at all. So it's not Jesus last name Christ. That's not what's going to be on his license. It's Jesus the Christ because it's, it's a title, Right, and so Christ, which in the Greek means Christos, is a translation of the Hebrew word called Messiah. Now, it means anointed one. And so in the Old Testament, the prophets prophesied that a Messiah would come and restore the earthly kingdom of Israel. And this title is a big deal because what, has ultim what is ultimately held within this title of Messiah, of Christ, is a person of hope. Because after the, the reconstruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Remember, they broke apart and they fell into captivity and they were released. Israel afterward remained insignificant. It's why Rome current, uh, during that time was powerful over them. They had no power and they had no resources. And the only thing that the Jews held onto for hope as a people would be that the Messiah would come and free them from captivity and establish them again as a powerful and wealthy nation. And so these people that we're reading about are desperate. 
And they're longing. They're wanting the prophecies of old to be true in their time. And yet, ironically, they are blind to the one Messiah that is right in front of them, Jesus. And this back and forth between the Jews of Jerusalem and Jesus reminds us, it's meant to remind us of John chapter 1. And if you remember a couple, you know, a couple months ago when we were there, John chapter 1 is a prologue. It sets up the whole narrative of John. And you'll find in John 1.11, it says that Jesus came to his own and his people did not know him. So it's no surprise that when they're having this fight, this debate about who he is, he says, this is who I am. They're like, this is not who you are. This is who I am. This is not who you are. They have this back and forth. But right before it says that he comes to his own, he says this in John 1.9. It says that Jesus is the true light that gives light to the world. And we cannot miss this. Okay? Because Jesus as the revealing light is, is really crucial to understanding a major part of his identity. And the apostle John, who is writing this, this gospel for us, has structured this story so that we would know this about Jesus. Because if you notice, we, we, we read all up to, up, to, up to what, 36? And even though the people have asked, Jesus, are you the Christ? Is there any answer? No. There is no answer because that's not the point John's trying to make here. John wants us to know that when we hear the words of Jesus, it will reveal the longings of our heart because he's the one who brings light to expose the darkness. His word reveals what we really value and what we place our hopes in. It shows us what gives us joy. It shows us what, what we think will give us peace. It actually painfully displays the lengths we will go to even receive just a portion of love. And as I was reading this text, preparing for this message, I began to wonder, you know, for a people so desperate for a Messiah, for so desperate for a Savior, after all they saw in Jesus, what would make them reject him? I mean, this man brought people from, from death to life, literally. Now I'm talking about like spiritual, like literal in the ground to life. He made blind people see. He made lame people walk. He made deaf people hear. Like, that's not ordinary. It's never been ordinary. Before Jesus and after, it's never been an ordinary thing. And yet, they cannot accept what Jesus is offering to them. Because the words of Jesus reveals that what they're longing for, the people, what they're longing for, they think is greater than anything that Jesus can offer. Right, so these Jews that we see in verse 25, the Jews of Jerusalem, they wanted a Messiah, they did, but only so that they could have power. The Pharisees in verses 32 and on, they also want a Messiah. They want someone who's powerful to lead them only if that Messiah would allow them to keep the power they have on this earth. And so the, the Messiah they're longing for and the Jesus that they're seeing are not adding up because the Jesus they would imagine would come and just kick everything off and destroy everything. And Rome goes here and you're going to hell and fire and brimstone, pew, 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 pew. And that's the kind of Jesus they thought they were going to find. But that's not, what the, Jesus, that's not the Jesus that we see in scriptures. He starts saying things like, I am the bread of life. Because if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. He'll start saying things like if, if someone hits one cheek, give them your other. These weren't words that they thought would, would be akin of a, of a king or a general or a commander. In fact, this makes sound Jesus like he's a crazy guy. But the people are convinced they knew who the, this, the Messiah would be and they look at Jesus and they go, listen, you're not that guy. 
And what's more even interesting is how the people responded. Every time Jesus speaks in this passage, they want to arrest him, they want to kill him, or they want to get rid of him. Why would they be so angry? Jesus was offering goodness to them, but it's because this. Jesus' words revealed to them that what they'd been longing for is not what they need. See, they didn't need the kingdom of Israel to be reestablished. They really didn't. They didn't need to have Rome overthrown. They didn't need all the gold and silver in the world. They didn't need to be robed in the finest of linens. What they needed was a savior who would satisfy his people, not for a moment, but for eternity. Y'all hear that? Because it's true of you and me. We don't need a savior that will satisfy us in today and tomorrow, but for every day after and forevermore. But the problem is, is not that we, is that, it's not really our longings that's the problem. It's that we don't see that these things won't satisfy us. You know, you want to know why? Because we can't. You see, Advent is not just remembering that we're a people of hope and longing, but it's a reminder that you and I are a people accustomed to a world of darkness. And that what we need is a great light to show us what this world truly looks like. That's why John, that's why Jesus is called the true light in John 1. He allows us to see things as they truly are. He helps us to see that the things of this world will never satisfy our hearts. So Jesus comes into this world of darkness and sometimes into this holiday season that can feel all but dark. And he radiates his light so that the darkness would be dispelled. But do you know what happens to eyes that have not seen the light? Well, have any of you ever gone to the bathroom in the middle of the night? You're like, oh, no, make it stop. I got to pee. You know, like, I got to go. It's painful. When eyes have been accustomed for so long to darkness and the light is there, it is painful for the eyes. And we've been so long as humanity in the darkness that when Jesus shines his light, it is painful. The exposure is painful. But I wonder, what's more painful? Having Jesus reveal to us that the things that we think will satisfy us will never, or getting the things that we've been longing for just to find out that we're just as empty as when we started. Which one is worse? But I need you to hear this tonight. Jesus does not get a kick out of this. When your eyes have been exposed, when your heart has been exposed, and you're crying and you're hoping to hide it, he's not laughing at you. He's not taking joy in your pain and suffering, but he does know this, that if he does not step in with his light, you will forever be blind. This is who Jesus is. He knows that on our own, we'll never see the world as it is. We'll walk in circles and circles and circles thinking we've made advancements, but because we're in the darkness, we've only just gone backwards. And when this happens, we can be tempted like the Jews in Jerusalem to become angry with Jesus and reject him. But I tonight want to challenge you to reconsider that knee-jerk reaction. Because as Jesus removes the darkness and shows us how empty this world really is, he does not leave us to anguish in our pain, but instead he moves into our dark spaces and he grabs us and he holds us. And he doesn't just go like, open your eyes. No, he holds us in kindness. And he says, I know it hurts. But I need you to open your eyes 
so that I can show you something that will satisfy you for all the days of your life. What do you think you'll find when you open your eyes? What do you think Jesus is trying to help us see? Will we find the Christ? Will we find the one that they've been waiting for? Will we find the thing that we've been longing for? Let's see Jesus' words in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I did not plan this. I need you to know this right now. I did not plan this. I just got... Mm -mm. Did not plan that. And whoever is listening to this, just know I took a drink of water, but I didn't plan it. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said... Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the people asked Jesus, man, are you the Christ? Just like, tell me, is this who you are? And you can imagine Jesus climbing up the temple steps, clearing his throat, and saying these words, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. What? Like you can imagine why people wanted to kill Jesus. Like the man couldn't give a straight answer. Like, are you the Christ or not? I'm water. What is that? What is that? But there's way more happening in this text than what is revealed here on the surface. So I'm going to invite you for just a brief moment to to put on your theology goggles with me because we're going to have to go on a deep dive into the Old Testament. And I'll bring us back to the New Testament, I promise. Um, But if we don't make this expedition together, we're going to get really lost in these few verses here in John because Jesus is actually saying, yes, I am the Christ, but he's saying it in a way that only if you knew the Old Testament, you'd understand it. So as we dive back into the Old Testament, I I want us to remember three major characters, okay? Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and humanity. Got it? Three. Jesus, Holy Spirit, humanity. Okay, so I'm going to take us back to Genesis, right to the beginning. You don't got to take your Bibles. I'll tell you. I'm your tour guide. I got you. I'll tell you when you need to look. look, I got you. Genesis, in the beginning, verse 1. The first two verses, we see what? A world that's in complete chaos. But then we see in the first two verses that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. And we need to start here because often when we read this text, we kind of just glance over, we just imagine the Holy Spirit just like chilling on the waves, hovering over the water. But the thing is, the authors of the Old Testament had a different understanding of words and imagery. They had their own grammar and their own idioms, their own understandings. Because the, the water in ancient Near Eastern literature wasn't about a body of water. Could be, but it wasn't. Waters often represented for biblical writers the idea of chaos. And it's not just for biblical writers, it's for all people. If you look at other pagan religions and other ancient Near Eastern writings, water was seen as the most violent of the pagan gods, the most violent of forces. And it makes sense, right? If you look at the water, have you seen a hurricane? Have you seen a typhoon? Have you seen a tsunami? Like, you see how destructive water can be? It's actually rather uncontrollable. So when the biblical author states that the spirit hovered over the water, it almost kind of starts making this, painting this picture of this, of this battle between God and chaos. And it doesn't say who, who won, 
But we get an idea because then right after the spirit's hovering over the water, we get, we're launched into the creation story. So guess who won that battle? God. So there was chaos. God entered into the scene, and then there was life everywhere. Right in the beginning, Genesis, we see that God has power over all chaos, and he makes order in life where there was disorder in death. And then we get the Garden of Eden. There's life everywhere. There's a bush there. There are berries there. there there's trees here, animals there, fish here. Old McDonald had a farm kind of deal. Like, there was just life everywhere. And so what comes out from God then that we see here is not only does he destroy chaos and death, but that literally what comes out of him is life. Life never ending. And I wish that's where the story ended because honestly, we wouldn't be here today. But it doesn't. We see the fall in Genesis 3 and now we see that sin is part of the world. And Genesis 3 ends with God sending the man and woman out of the garden. And if you read closely, you'll see that Adam and Eve went what direction? East. Now, East has been the story of humanity because we were in a place, right, in the, in the garden, we were in a place where God provided hope, joy, love, and peace in abundance, and then sin, sin entered the world, and then we were sent out East to go back to the chaos that covered the earth, and we've been waiting and longing to experience those things ever since. Way before the Jews wanted their kingdom to be established, humanity has been waiting for this emptiness that's inside you and me to be filled and satisfied. And then as you traverse to the rest of the Old Testament, water, what was once representing chaos, God tames it, controls it, and then God makes it into a blessing. Because humanity after the garden is described as people who are thirsty for salvation. As you read the Old Testament, but you're going to find stories, not of the water being a blessing, but you'll see stories of humans, of people trying different ways to fill their hearts with things that they think will soothe their aching heart, but only in doing so make their lives worse. Have, has human history not shown us that? Every time we try to make advancements, we just blow up a country. Every time we, we make a new religion, we kill thousands of people. Like, no matter what we do, all we bring about is destruction. It's a rather dark story, but then God answers in. So I'm going to take us to one specific Old Testament text that reveals that God will restore all that was lost to humanity. I'm going to take us to Ezekiel chapter 47. I'm going to encourage you to go there with me. Old Testament, starting in verse 1. Now, this, this vision that we're about to see is a vision that Ezekiel, the prophet, received from God, describing how God will restore everything that has been lost. Now, I want you to read along, and if you're not there, if you, it's fine. I just want you to listen because the imagery is so important to understanding the words of Jesus in John 7. Then he brought me back, meaning Ezekiel, he brought me back, to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east, and the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. 
Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and eventually the water, it was waist deep. Again, he measured another thousand and it became a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank, I want you to pay attention to this. Listen to what he's seeing. Imagine this, a river where there's trees everywhere on one side and the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water comes into the sea, the water will become fresh. Talking about the Dead Sea. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. There will be many, very many fish for this water, wherever this water goes, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the water goes. I'm going to take us down to verse 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Notice how the prophecy highlights what direction again? East. East was where Adam and Eve went after the garden. East meant going away from God's kingdom. It was where suffering and brokenness would be. East, again, is the story of humanity. It's our story. But what do we see in response to the east? We see the temple is faced east. And from that temple, there's this water that moves in this direction. And it, it starts as a trickle, just slowly. And then it becomes a river of living water where, where life and healing come in abundance, where, where there's no chaos but peace, where there are no needs because everything is satisfied. And what's beautiful about this vision is that God gives his vision through Ezekiel to the, to the Old Testament Israel as they're in exile. They're in captivity. And Jesus and God says to them, I'm going to make this right. And guess what? This vision is for you and me. This vision of restoration is meant for you and for me. Jesus actually says this as much because in John 1.14, Jesus says that he is the word that dwelt among us. That phrase, dwelt among us, literally means that Jesus tabernacled or he templed himself among his people. Again, if Jesus is the temple... And he is facing east, and we have gone east, and his river and his water flows east. What does it mean? It means that he's coming after you and me. He has not left us in our humanity, in our brokenness, but he's come for us. It brings us back again to John 7. This was the last day of the feast, the great day. Do you remember what feast we're in? It's the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, or it's called in, 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 in Hebrew, Sukkot. And as Sukkot would happen, the Jewish people would have remembered everything that we had just gone through. That whole deep dive wasn't just for fun. Like, I don't want to show you how smart I was. That's not what it was. This whole deep dive was to rem for us to know everything that they would have been thinking about as Jesus says these words in this feast. 
See, the vision that was seen in Ezekiel would have been imprinted on their hearts and their minds because year after year they would sing and cry and long for this vision to come reality. They were waiting for their journey east to finally end and that they would be restored back into the garden, to the kingdom of God. But every day, this is how the feast was broken down. It would start in the morning. The high priest would take this large container called a flagon made of gold. And he'd start at the temple. And him with the priests and all the thousands and thousands of people had come for Sukkot. They'd come. They'd, they'd walk down solemnly, actually quite quietly. They'd come down. They'd come down. Eventually, they stop after a couple of miles. And they go to this thing called the Pool of Siloam. Fill up the water. And they start walking back. At this point, they start singing something called the Hillel, which is Psalms 113 to 118. And all these psalms are centered around God being faithful, that he is worthy to be praised, that he hears the suffering of his people, and they long to be in his presence. And so as they get to the temple, they're singing this, and then the high priest gets to the top of the temple steps, and everything goes kind of quiet, and he pours out the water like trickling, just like in Ezekiel, heading east. But the last day was a special day because, yes, it would do this. They would get the water, go down, fill it up, and go down. But at this point, they're coming back, and now they're starting to start to not just say the Hallel. They start crying it out, screaming on the top of their lungs. They start sounding the shofar. The trumpets would be heard. And just as they get to the temple steps, all the men cry out one verse Psalm 118.25, they collectively cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And if you know what that means, it means this, save us, save us, save us. And then it goes silent. And all you hear is the water trickle down the steps again. But then because it's so quiet, you begin to hear a pitter-patter up these steps. And then someone cries out. And you're wondering who this voice is. And you start to recognize this is the guy we tried to kill. This is the man that we don't want. This is the one that we rejected. And Jesus cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can you see what he's saying here? Can you see what Jesus is saying to the Jews? He's saying this. He goes, if I could make order out of a disordered world in Genesis, I can make order in your life today. If I can make life where there was only death, I can make you alive today. You've been in darkness for far too long, and I've come to be your true light. You have looked for the Christ, and he is here. You've been longing for so long, but I'm finally here, and I'm more than anything you could have ever imagined. That water, that vision that Ezekiel had that would restore this broken world where life and healing is necessary, guess what? It's here. Save us, save us, save us. I'm here, Jesus says. You want hope? First Peter 3.9 says, I'm the living hope. You want peace? 
Isaiah 1, 6 says that he is the prince of peace. You want joy? John 15, 11 says Jesus will deposit his joy into your heart. You want love? God says that is who I am. Save us? I have. So Advent, the season of longing and waiting, but Jesus, the one who brings hope and deliverance. But the Jews were not the only ones who needed a Messiah. You need one. You need one. And you need one. And you need one. And you need one. And I need one. Not just yesterday, not today, but forevermore. I need this Christ. Because year after year, these Jews cried out, save us. And when Jesus comes, they reveal they don't want any of it. Because whatever we long for the longest reveals what we believe most will satisfy us. And many of us are not longing for Jesus. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. The most pastoral thing I could try to say. But this has been some of the most terrifying things for me to say. Some of you are heading into your 30s or in your 30s and you're still single. And you may believe that marriage will bring you all the love you've been looking for. And then there's some of you who are same-sex attracted and you long to be held and loved, I know. And so you believe that if God just made you straight, it would all be okay. You'd finally have peace again. Or maybe if God just let you have a couple of sexual encounters with someone of the same sex, then maybe that aching in your heart will go away. And some of you are addicts. I know you don't want to be that. I know you didn't choose to be there. And you're praying so hard, thinking that everything in life would be okay if you just didn't have those cravings anymore. Now please, make no mistake, I'm... I don't say anything, these things lightly. And I, what I'm not saying is that you should stop praying. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to your community and to your pastors or to train clinicians for help. I'm not saying any of those things. What I am saying is this. If you give into these lies, you will never be satisfied. If you want to be married or if you think you're gonna get married, I can promise you there are gonna be plenty of points of pain that will arise. It will not bring all that you hope for. If you were to be made into a heterosexual, you too probably will struggle along with the rest of us with lust, desiring things that are not for you. If you were to no longer be an addict, you too could just find something else to cope with the pain of this world. But instead, I invite you to hear the voice of Jesus. Hear the voice of Jesus. Resonate with the cries of the Jews. Save us, save us, save us. And Jesus says, I have and I am and I'm the only one that can satisfy your heart's greatest longings because you don't need a momentary fix. Your heart was made for eternity. So the only one who can satisfy our hearts is Jesus because he's not bound by anything. Your heart will always want, but he will always give. Now, I could end my message here and I'd be satisfied. I think I've preached. I think I'm done. 
But there's more to Jesus' words here. There's another crazy thing he says. After he says, come to me and drink, he then says, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So why am I bringing this up? It's because Jesus means to have this world, this entire world, teeming with life. He is meant to restore this world. Not the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of this world. His kingdom he means to establish on this world. He wants all of humanity to experience love, joy, hope, and peace. He's the only one who can give that endlessly. I stand by that. But what Jesus has just said is that he is the river of living water and that we, you and I, believers in Jesus, would be outpourings of that river. That vision that was given to Ezekiel is and has been completed in Christ. Make no mistake, he is the living water. But the church, sons and daughters of God, were always meant to carry this water, this living water, to others so that when we see people who are thirsty, we give them a taste of it, and they would ask, where did you get this water from? And we say, come, let me take you to the riverbank. Let's move away east and go back to the garden. Let me show you, because you need to be submerged in this living water and know that you will be forever be satisfied but it's not going to be easy. Because after these words that Jesus proclaims on the temple, literally right afterward, verses 40 through 52, the people don't want any of it. They, 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 they begin to fight about who Jesus is again. They're not listening anymore. They're just saying this is who he's got to be, right? And they seek to arrest him. And then the Pharisees become even angrier, going, why didn't you arrest him, you idiots? Literally, he goes, you guys are accursed because you guys don't know anything about the Bible. Ironically, they don't even see that Jesus is the Messiah. So as we carry this water, you and I carry this living water and try to display love, joy, hope, and peace, this world may not accept it. Now, I don't say this to you to make you afraid. And I'm also not trying to excuse us so that we can hide and hoard these things to ourselves. Something that's dawned on me as of late is this, because I, I, you may feel like I'm just coming down on you guys and that you guys are the worst. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. Something that's dawned on me as of late is that I am a person who longs to be served. Not to serve, but to be served. I'm happy to be your guest, but I am not as happy to be your host. I'm happy to unwrap gifts. Some of y'all got gifts from me, from wrapping, and you'll know which ones it is because it looks a little messed up because I don't like wrapping gifts because I'm not good at it. Sometimes I'm so satisfied knowing that I'm loved by Jesus, but I'm less eager to let others know of Christ's love, especially when it's an unbeliever who could reject these words I'm offering to them. But this is not the picture that Jesus has painted for us here. He does not invite us to be part of his river and then only give this living water to those who accept it. That's his gig. He decides. But we have an opportunity, literally today and in this season, in this holiday season and beyond, you and I get to overrun every single place that we walk and occupy it with living water by expressing love, joy, hope, and peace to a world who is literally longing for it because this world is dark. 
This weekend, my Rachel and I decided to watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The extended cut, okay? I'm so glad there's this many nerds in a room. It's okay, it's okay. We're, we're safe here, we're safe here. And now, if I reveal something to you that you don't know, the movie's been out for over 20 years, all right? Like, it shows, too. Like, you see some of the cinematography, you're like, well, that's a little rough. But it's been out, okay? So go ahead, go ahead, go watch it. But there's a second movie, the Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and it's towards the end of the movie, and there's a couple of the main characters, they're, they're stuck in this inner chamber of, of Helm's Deep. I might be remembering this wrong, actually. I might remember the, the names wrong, but all I know is Theoden, he's the king of Rohan, he's kind of just given up. He goes, I, we're not going to make it. The orcs are beating down, trying to break down the, the doors. And Aragorn goes, listen, man, we got to go. We got we to gotta fight them. But there's this small exchange of words that has stuck with me since. As he hears the pounding of death, trying to break through the doors. Theoden says this, so much death. What can men do? What can mankind do against such reckless hate? And Aragon goes, we go and we meet it. We ride out. And from face to face, we will meet with death. This world is a planet of death. And this world cannot afford for you and I to cower in the corner. We cannot afford to wait to bring this living water because the people in this community need to be reminded of Christ's living water. The people in the world need to be brought into the riverbank and submerged in Christ. And that will never happen if we're just waiting here. But Christ has come, placed his water in us for us to go right out and meet death face to face. Some of you will be going home for Christmas and home may be the hardest place to do this. To display love, joy, hope, and peace. But God has promised you living water satisfied by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to give. And there are people in this community, I can promise you, there are people in this community who do not have somewhere to go for Christmas. May we open our homes to them, seek them out, invite them in as Jesus has sought us out and brought us home because this is what the world is longing for. I know it's gonna be hard. I know it won't be easy because death is scary to look at in the face. But here's one thing I want to give you hope in. At the very end, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, it's always surprised me that in the new heavens and new earth, there's no ocean. Mm -hmm. I don't even like the beach that much. Like, I don't like, honestly, sometimes I wonder why I'm in Florida. And there's no ocean. It's almost as if to say, the chaos that once was will never be again. 
Then he says this, the very end, the very last chapter. A river flows from the temple and from the Lamb of God. And the people will drink of it. No more tears. No more pain. No more suffering. And who does it flow from? Jesus. Can we take this water to a world who is thirsty? Knowing that today it may be hard and tomorrow it may be even harder. But there will be a day where chaos and death will forever be gone and we will always sing hope, love, joy, and peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this invitation that you've given onto us to become part of your living water, to partake, not just drink, but to give unto others. God, I pray that in this season that may be difficult, a season that some people look forward to, some people dread, that we would remember your words. Come to me, those who are thirsty, and I will give you drink. May our hearts remember that you are the one that we've longed for. The things of this world will not satisfy us. The things that we think that we've been longing for will give us peace and rest. It will not, but only you can. There hasn't been a single promise that you have not fulfilled, and you won't stop today. God, may our hearts long for you and only you knowing that we no longer have to be afraid of it never happening, but knowing that it's secured through Christ on the cross. May we live in light of that. God, I pray for restoration for this community, for this, not just church community, but for the, the Winter Garden area and everywhere that we might go, for our homes that we may be going home to for Christmas, to the jobs that we'll go back to after the holiday season, that these places that are teeming with death would be replaced with life because we bring your water there. And God, I pray for the, for the healing and life that's in Ezekiel's vision. God, I pray for that. There are hearts here that are wounded, and I pray for your healing. There are hearts here that are broken, and I pray for their wholeness. I just pray that you would do everything that you have been faithful to promise. Complete it. Make us your vessels. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults Podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use the message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.